Welcome, and thanks for checking out the Living Word Family Church Sermon Podcast. Before we get to the message, we'd like to invite you to check out Living Word Family Church if you don't already have a church home. For more information, you can check out our website at livingwordfamily.org. Anybody see the, I just, I don't know when this story came out. Let me see if there's a date on this. Uh, Oh, it's a while back. But I just saw it today. Did anybody see this uh, Michael Bloomberg interview about going to heaven? Anybody remember that? He, uh, now I first saw it in connection with a, uh, he had uh, donated five or $50 million to some new gun control group to be the anti uh, NRA. And I'm not going to get into that. That's not the issue. He said in this interview, I like what I see when I look in the mirror. We've probably, and he's not just talking about this by this point. He's talking about a number of things, uh, you know, uh, trying to do away with the coal industry and a number of other things. I like what I see when I look in the mirror. We probably saved millions of lives and certainly will save tens of millions of lives going forward. He says, referring to the causes he has supported and funded for the future. There aren't many people that have done that. So, you know, when I get to heaven, I'm not sure I'm going to stand for an interview. I'm going right in. Uh, he's 75, I think. He's given away approximately $5 billion of a $47 billion fortune. Well, $5 billion is, uh, yeah, anyway. Point is, if he gave the whole thing away, what's he saying? This is what it costs to get into heaven? Not many people have done what I've done. Not many people have $47 billion. You're saying that because of whatever, maybe because of your hard work, I don't know his story, I don't know how much he inherited, I don't know how much he did, uh, how, much he cre- how much wealth he created, but the whole point is, uh, is he saying that once you give a certain amount, you don't have to worry about anything else? Uh, he's certainly missing the truth of the gospel, isn't he? That the very idea that you can buy your way into heaven, which is what he hangs his whole, this whole interview on. How do I know I'm getting to heaven? I have given away a lot of money for a lot of good causes. Man, we need to pray for people, you know? I don't know anything. I know very little about Bloomberg. I know the name. He's famous, okay? But I don't know anything about his history. I don't know anything about his background. I just happened to catch this just not, too, just not long before the service. I wanted to share that with you. But I think it's safe to assume he's not an idiot, I think he ought to be, he's probably well-educated. You know, but I can remember, and this has nothing to do with my message tonight. It was just kind of stirring in me. I can remember going back to, in in high school, uh, I don't even remember what the name of the class was, but we called it isms. It was the isms class. Remember that class? Cheryl, did you have it with German? Anyway, where we studied capitalism, socialism, fascism, just learning about what these different worldviews are, and then there was actually a... a, uh, unit on Christianity. And he got up to talk about what Christianity was. And here he's told us what I assumed, you know, as a, as a high school senior, I assumed my teacher knew what he was talking about. I sure didn't, but it made sense to me. But then he gets up to talk about Christianity and he says, Christianity is a belief that Jesus Christ is the son of God. And also that if you do good works, you'll go to heaven. And if you do bad works, you'll go to hell. And I'm like, 
That's not what Christianity is. And so suddenly I'm like, does he know what fascism is? Does he know what communism is? Does he know what capitalism is? And so we get into this. And, but it's amazing to me how many educated people have no idea what the claims of the gospel really are. But you know whose job it is to tell them? Yeah, yours. Okay, ours. It's my job to tell you how to tell them. It's your job to tell them, right? Anyway, tonight... I want to, we're going to look at something. It's a, it's a version of a, of a message I, I have preached before. I was just mulling over some things. I have so many things. Now that I've been in the ministry so many years, I've got so many, I've got archives I can look back on and things I want to share from time to time. I don't know when the last time I shared any version of this particular message was. We're going to read a long passage of scripture to start out with. So you can open your Bibles to the book of John. Chapter 1. Beginning in verse 19. John 1, 19. Now this is the testimony of John when the Jews, and talking about John the Baptist here, testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? Now John the Baptist had been making waves. He's got a lot of attention. He's uh, baptizing a lot of people. So the Pharisees sent some people to find out who he was. Verse 20. He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I'm not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. And then they said to him, who are you that we may give an answer to those who sent us? What do you say about yourself? He said, I am, and he quotes Isaiah, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. As the prophet Isaiah said, now those who were sent were from the Pharisees and they asked him saying, why then do you baptize if you are not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them saying, I baptize with water, but there stands one among you whom you do not know. It is he who coming after me is preferred before me, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to lose. These things were done in Beth, uh, uh, Beth, Abara, beyond the Jordan, where John was baptizing. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who is preferred before me, for he was before me. I did not know him, but that he should be revealed to Israel. Therefore, I came baptizing with water. And John bore witness, saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and he remained upon him. I did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, Upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. This was John the Baptist's witness. Verse 35, again, the next day, John stood with two of his disciples And looking at Jesus as he walked, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. Then Jesus turned, and seeing them following, said to them, What do you seek? They said to him, Rabbi, which is to say when translated, Teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come and see. They came and saw where he was staying and remained with him that day. Now it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon's brother. Now, he doesn't say who the other one was. The other one was him, John, the guy who's writing this, all right? 
verse 41, he found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which is translated the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Now when Jesus looked at him, he said, you are Simon, the son of Jonah. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated a stone, or Peter. Verse 43, the following day, Jesus wanted to go to Galilee, and he found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered and said to him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered and said to him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. I want you to see a few things in this passage. And I love this passage. Number one, there were people in this passage looking for the Messiah. And without going into a deep explanation, a lot of this, most of it, rests on Daniel's prophecy. When Daniel talked about the 70 weeks, or Daniel wrote about the angel telling him there are 70 weeks determined for your people. This is 70 weeks of years. The angel was telling him, God was telling him, that there was a period of 490 years. It's 70 weeks of years, 70 times 7, 490, 490 years, that would start at the rebuilding of Jerusalem. And then when they counted forward, they knew that Messiah was going to come about this time. You had people on the earth, in Jerusalem, in Palestine, in in Judea, looking for the Messiah because they knew the time was right. And so John shows up on the scene, and John is preaching up a storm, and John looks like an Old Testament character. You know, we have a tendency, we think, ah, people who lived 2,000 years ago, they lived about the same as people who lived 4,000 years ago. Not really true. And so John looked like a relic to the people of Jesus' day. He comes in out of the desert wearing this rough, these rough clothes, you know, a leather band around his waist. What do you, hey, are you hungry? No, I've been eating good. What have you been eating? Honey and grasshoppers. And, and he's just this rough guy, all right? And he's baptizing people and he's preaching up a storm and people were flocking to him and he gets the attention of the Pharisees and the Pharisees are like, eh, go check this guy out. Is he, is, he, is he claiming to be the Messiah? I'm not sure the Pharisees would have been willing to accept him as the Messiah, but they wanted to find out what his claim was. And so they said, are you, are, and he said, no, I'm not the Christ. Christ, Messiah, same thing. They said, well, are you, well, they asked him, are you Elijah? Are you Elijah? They knew who Elijah was, and Elijah had been dead for centuries. Why did they ask him that? Because Malachi, in the book of Malachi, it says right at the very end, I am going to send you Elijah, the prophet, and he will turn the hearts of the sons of the fathers and the fathers to the sons, lest I strike the earth with a curse. So they knew that before Messiah came, Elijah was going to come. Now, John said no. But what John meant was, my name's John. 
I am not a reincarnation of Elijah. What did Jesus say? Jesus' word trumps everybody else. What did he say? John is Elijah. When we talk, start talking about Elijah coming back, that's when that happened. Jesus, uh, John actually embodied the spirit of Elijah. He was the one. The, you know, Elijah was also a very blunt, outspoken, you know, kind of a very bold guy. And John ministered in the same way. Are you the prophet? Who's the prophet? In Deuteronomy chapter 18, God tells Moses, I'm going to send them a prophet like you. And so they were looking for Elijah, and they were looking for the prophet. The prophet was Jesus. Elijah was John the Baptist. They're looking for four different people, three different people. And, 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 and they're, all, they're all the same, okay? Jesus is the prophet that was prophesied in Deuteronomy. John the Baptist is the Elijah that was prophesied in Malachi, all right? So, fast forward through some of this, and it's interesting. They were looking for him based on the timing. They're counting down. They send these representatives. They ask these questions. And uh, then the next day, Jesus comes, and John says, Behold the Lamb of God. This is the one I was talking about yesterday. He's going to baptize with the Holy Spirit. And the next day, John stood with two of his disciples, and he says again, Behold the Lamb of, the God, Lamb of God, and two of his disciples just turned and they followed Jesus. Now it says, Then Jesus turned to them and said, What do you seek? Which sounds very proper, sounds very formal. It really, I, I'm not trying to be disrespectful, I'm not trying to be heretical or anything, but I always try to picture real conversations between Jesus and his disciples, Jesus and the people. And I think he kind of turned around and looked at these guys and said, What do you want? And they wanted to talk to him. They wanted to ask him some questions. Why? Because they had been John the Baptist's disciples. They were impressed with John the Baptist. They were willing to follow John forever until John said, there's the one who's greater than me. This is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So they're like, see ya. And they follow Jesus. And so they're following him. He turns around, what do you guys want? Uh, They weren't ready to enter into a conversation with him. So they said, uh... Where are you staying? Where do you live? Meaning, where can we catch up with you later? Give us an address. We'll come visit you tomorrow. We'll come visit you next week. We'll, uh, we'll, do, we'll give us time to get our questions together. And what did Jesus say? Uh, why don't you come by next Thursday? Where are you staying? Come and see. Let's deal with this right now. If you're really interested, come and see. So they did, and they stayed with him. Interesting. He, he nails it down. It was the 10th hour, which I think was, I don't know if I'm remembering my notes right, it was like 4 o'clock in the afternoon. John remembers the exact time he became a follower of Jesus Christ. This was a huge turning point in the lives of, lives of these guys. Come and see. And they did. They came and saw. That's the very next line. They came and saw where he was staying and remained with him that day. Now it was about the 10th hour. Uh, Then, when it says here uh, in verse 41, he first found his brother. This is Andrew. Goes and finds Peter and says, or finds Simon, who would be Peter, and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which is translated the Christ. 
this is important because that word, uh, heurisko, heurisko, the Greek word, heurisko, can mean I found what I'm looking for. That's really the primary meaning. Or it can mean I encountered it. You know, I've ta- we've talked about this verse in Proverbs, he who finds a wife finds a good thing. And that word really means it's not like you're out looking for a wife and you find her. It's kind of like you're walking along and, ooh, I found a $20 bill. It's on my way. It's, I'm already heading somewhere and I encounter something good along the way. And that's important because you find a wife who's heading the same direction you're heading. You don't have to get off track to find her. That's an encounter. Here the word is a little, it's a little broader. It could mean that that you just encountered. We have found, we have encountered the Christ. We bumped into him. But in view of everything else that's happening in these conversations, and it'll be made even more clear later, this is who they were looking for. We have finally found the Messiah. We have discovered him. And that's important, too, because it wasn't like we were standing there and boom, the Messiah dropped out of the sky. He appeared to us. Now we found him. He was there and we found him. Hurisco. Do you know what that's the root? Does that sound a little bit like anything when we're talking about finding something? Everybody hear the word Eureka? Eureka! What's it mean? I found it. Any uh, math majors tell me who's uh, attributed to shouting that, that word? Come on, I'm an English major and I know this one. Huh? Archimedes, yeah, yeah. There, were, there was a big problem, which was, you know, if, if you could measure a box, you know, something that you could, then you could figure out what the volume was. But if you had an irregular shaped container, it was hard to figure out the volume. And supposedly Archimedes lowered himself into the bathtub and watched the water rise and realized that's how you figure it out. Eureka! And supposedly he was so excited about this discovery that he jumped out of the bathtub and ran down the street naked to share his discovery. So, I found it. We found him. Eureka! We found the Messiah. Do you remember the I found it campaign of the 70s? You are, if you're a certain age, you certainly do remember. Little blue button with white letters. I found it. And, uh, and that's what that was about. We found the Messiah. We found Christ. We found our Savior. And then we skip down to, uh, well, yeah, let's skip down to uh, verse 45. When Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote. Interesting that they made all these connections from the law and the prophets. That they were all writing about Jesus, and they were getting to the good part. But let me back up here for a second. There's, there's going to be some confusion, because since the time was right, there were going to be false Christs. A studious Jew, and you didn't have to be an expert. You didn't have to be the, the first century equivalent of a, of a Hal Lindsey or somebody who just specializes in this stuff. There were a lot of good Jews, and there were a lot of bad Jews. Who knew the time was right? We'll talk about this, I'm sure, in the coming weeks at one point or another. When the Magi came and appeared before Herod, where is he who was born king of the Jews? Nobody went, what? What are you talking about? They kind of knew something was cooking too. 
And when Herod turned to his advisors, uh, hey, help these guys out, they're like, well, you know, they, uh, the, the prophecies say he was supposed to be born in Bethlehem. So this didn't catch you in, in terms of him, him being there. It didn't take anybody by surprise. He didn't come like everybody thought he was going to come. Anyway, there were going to be false Christs, and there were. If you fast forward to the book of Acts, when the church is just beginning, and the disciples are really making waves, and the church is growing in leaps and bounds, there's a meeting of the Sanhedrin, and they're like, what should we do? Should we imprison these guys? Should we kill these guys? What do we do? And Gamaliel says, leave them alone. Leave them alone. Because there's two things here. If they're wrong, if they're making this up, if they're fakes, they're going to be just like, and he names these two other guys. Remember when so-and-so rose up and claimed to be something special? He had a couple hundred guys follow him, and then the whole thing petered out. And then so-and-so, same thing. If these guys are like that, the same thing's going to happen to them. We don't have to do a thing. It'll just fizzle out on its own. But if they're right... We don't want to be the ones fighting them. We don't want to find ourselves fighting against God himself. So right there in that time, there were two false Christs by name. And they probably weren't the only ones. Because, again, there were people, there always will be, people who know the time is close, and so it's easy to convince people, I'm the one. There are people in in our day and age, there are people walking the earth right now who have convinced thousands that they are the Christ. It's pathetic. So, and Israel's tendency, Israel's history had been uh, affected greatly by their tendency to not follow God wholeheartedly because they didn't particularly like the way God did things. He would tell me he was going to do it, and they're like, yeah. And then when he'd do it, they're like, oh, we didn't think it was going to happen that way. And they'd kind of back off. I'm I'm being purposely vague because that's going to come up here in a Sunday sermon here in the next week or two. But when they say, we found him, and they say, know who it is? It's Jesus of Nazareth. And he says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And that's kind of a funny thing to hear because we're like, oh, Nazareth, this backwoods town, you know, this uh, backwater. And and it sounds kind of insulting. And it may have been a little bit. I really don't think that was necessarily Nathaniel's heart. I think what he was really referring to was the fact that he couldn't square it as a student, as a, as, a, as a believer in the scriptures, he couldn't find where Nazareth played a significant role. The scripture said the Messiah was going to be born in Bethlehem. But there's nothing in there about Nazareth. So Jesus of Nazareth, how does that fit into this whole scheme? But he didn't say it that way. He said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And what does Philip say to him? The same thing Jesus said to, those, to John and, and Andrew, come and see. I'm not going to argue with you. Just come and meet this guy. Verse 47, Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed is whom, in whom is no deceit. Uh, Old King James, I think, and maybe other translations say, in whom is no guile. Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? Jesus answered and said to him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. 
And Nathanael answered and said to him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Now, what was it about that statement? How'd he know I was under the fig tree? Now, that might have been stunning, but is that enough to cause somebody to cry out, You are the son of God, the king of Israel. You knew I was under the fig tree when Philip came to talk to me. Doesn't make it, it doesn't make sense to me. We say he is, there's no deceit or no guile. Uh, a guileless person is somebody, it goes beyond simple humility. A, a person with no guile is a person who's not afraid to admit when they don't know something. They don't have, they have, there's no pretense. They are candid. The, the opposite of, of guileless would be disingenuous. Somebody who's just not necessarily a liar. Just trying to present themselves a little bit, pre- pretending ignorance when they know something, pretending knowledge when they don't. A guileless person, you know exactly who they are. And there are precious few people like that. But Nathaniel was one of them. Nathaniel wasn't some dogmatic loudmouth who went around telling people exactly what the Messiah was going to be like, what he'd look like, where he was from. He, 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 there were things he didn't know. And he would admit he didn't know, but he wanted to know. Now, this is the part of the message, and I'm wrapping it up, getting close anyway, where I'm getting into conjecture. I'm supposing some things. I can't point to chapter and verse. I just can tell you I'm convinced I'm right. All right? I won't quite say, thus saith the Lord, but, and if it, does not, if it doesn't bear witness with you, I'm not going to be offended, but I'm going to tell you what makes this passage make sense to me. He wanted to know the Messiah. He knew the time was right. He was one of those who was looking. He wanted to see the Messiah. There were two things he wanted to avoid. One was being misled by an imposter, because as we've already seen, there would be false Christs. The other thing he wanted to avoid was missing him altogether. He knew Israel's history, and Israel had missed some important things God did, had misinterpreted some important things God did, had run away from certain things God did. I believe, I firmly believe, that the fig tree was his prayer closet. This is where Nathaniel sat and pondered the scriptures. This is where he sat and prayed. He thought about Messiah, where he prayed specifically to God, don't let me miss him. So when Jesus said, I saw you under the fig tree, Nathaniel didn't say, ha, ha, how'd you know I was under a fig tree? He said, you're the son of God, the king of Israel. Because Nathaniel knew what he'd been thinking about and praying about under that fig tree. And what an oddly specific thing for Jesus to refer to. Obviously, there is the truth, the application that Jesus is coming back. And Jesus himself told us that there will be false Christs in this time too. We've talked about that recently in our study of Thessalonians. And we say as Christians, we shouldn't have to worry about that. Because Paul has told us very clearly that when he comes back, he's coming, coming back on clouds of glory with all of his angels for the world to see. But Lord knows there are plenty of people. I just, I'm, you can look it up. Just, there's a Wikipedia article 
on, on seven or eight guys who, who all claim to be Jesus who are alive right now, who have followings. So here's my question. Are you looking for him, though? Looking for him in terms of preparing for his arrival. Are you getting to know him so you won't be fooled? And that's a connection to point number two. These early disciples had to come and see. You know, the Word of God tells us to taste and see that the Lord is good. And when we come and see, we don't find a God who tells us to meet him later. We don't find a God who's standing far off. We find a God who delights in revealing himself to us. There's a, there's a phrase we use oftentimes in, uh, when we're talking about praise and worship and, and uh, travailing in prayer, which is press in. Press in. I'm not necessarily opposed to that phrase because I think there are things we need to press past, press aside as we focus on God. What I don't like about it is because the image, and I've heard dozens of preachers and over the course of 20 or 30 years present it, not explicitly this way, but implicitly this way, that there's this barrier that all, it's almost like God himself has got this force field, and he's testing our faith to see if we will just press in hard enough to get to him. It's not like that at all. Anything we're pressing against is something the enemy brings, it's something our imagination brings, our, our flesh brings. There are things we have to deny in order to press into God. God delights in revealing himself to us. And Jesus, he's the one who said it first, Rabbi, where are you staying? Come and see. There's an invitation there. There's an invitation there. And Jesus offers it to you. He offers it to me. In order to see who he is, in order to know him, we have to respond to the invitation. Stand up. Now I'm looking around here. And it's good to see all of you. And I think most of you are saved. But I want you to, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make the invitation anyway. I never want to take anything for granted. So let me say that first. If you've never made Jesus Christ your Lord and Savior, if you've never recognized him as the Messiah, and you want to come and see, he will show you. He's not hiding in a corner. He's there with open arms saying, oh yeah, come and see. Taste and see that the Lord is good. I'll show you who I am. Thanks for listening. We hope that this message encouraged and equipped you in your walk with Christ. Make sure to follow us on Facebook or Instagram to stay updated with what's going on at Living Word Family Church. Have a great day.